Hello and welcome back to Everyday Oral Surgery. This is your host, Dr. Grant Stuckey. I'm an oral maxillofacial surgeon practicing in Denver, Colorado, and I really appreciate you tuning into the episode today. Thanks to all those who have emailed and texted me ideas about topics for the podcast or guests they want to hear from. If you would like to be a guest on the show or know someone you'd like to hear from, please email me at grantstukey at gmail.com. Also, please visit our website, everydayoralsurgery.com, if you'd like to search the podcast in an easier way by topic. We'd like to hear from everyone and really appreciate you guys listening. Keep in mind that everything we're discussing here is based on personal experience and opinions, so please supplement everything you're learning here with approved research studies. Without further ado, please enjoy today's episode. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode. Today I'm with Dr. Paul Rollins. He is an oral max special surgeon practicing in Ohio. He's done a couple episodes with me already. Paul, thank you so much for doing another episode. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me back. Yes. Do you want to explain a little bit about our topic today? Yeah. So the thought for today was leaning more towards those individuals who are deciding, yes, I think private practice is for me. But now that I've decided that, what do I do now? What do I do next? And really some of the specific, basic yet profound principles in business, because all of a sudden you're going to be coming out of no business background to looking at different practices and whether these are good investments and a good business for you. And so going from zero background and no building blocks to do that, to all of a sudden trying to make sense of all that can be a a big task. Yep, for sure. Yeah. So I'm guessing uh, probably the large majority of residents still these days, as it was back in our day, want to go into private practice. And so I think this can be helpful to a lot of our listeners. And you have a little bit of some type of business background. Is that correct? Correct. I did do my undergraduate degree in human resource management in the business school. And then also during one of the summers in undergrad, I spent a summer doing an accounting internship. So a little bit of real world experience, plus some of the background in the education definitely helped. Okay. Good. Well, hopefully our different backgrounds together can kind of shed some light on some of the options and things that our kind of residents getting ready to go out into private practice should be aware of. Uh, So we can just get going here. What are some of the specifics of like basic business principles? So one, when you start looking for a practice, something to keep in mind is just it's never too early to start looking and that is because there may be different practices that could be a great setup for you and without you really starting that conversation there could be a practice that could potentially make room for you or make a really good transition happen and so if you've decided even early on in residency that you want to do private practice it is never too early to start talking to different practices that you are interested in joining. And I don't think you'll run into anyone that ever said, man, I just, we just had too much time to make that happen and to make that transition happen smoothly. So start as soon as you can, as soon as you decide 
that you want to join a private practice and where you want to practice. Another couple things that go into that too is there's some of these senior partners or owners that are kind of have in the back of their mind that they know they are on the verge of retirement, but if they don't have a specific plan, they're, they're not really knowing what that looks like yet. And they're not acting on it. I almost think of it as like the, uh, we always talk about the stages of people are in, in, in quitting smoke. They're almost like the contemplative or pre-contemplative stage. But if you start talking to them, they might see a specific plan where they could get out of their practice and retire. So, and then last but not least, it's the competition. So you are in direct competition with all of the candidates who are going to be finishing your year and not even just the residents, but there's going to be other individuals that are in private practice settings or other settings that they're just not happy in. And they're going to be looking to, to transition somewhere else too. If you have a good relationship with a private practice and you are essentially one of their few candidates talking to them years before other people are even talking to them, you're essentially shoring up your spot. And so you really cut down on the competition that you have. Yeah, that's a good point. So let's say you still have a year or two left and you kind of really have set up a good relationship. You think you want to join a practice and a place you want to be kind of where, you know, should you go from there and how should you evaluate that practice and make sure it really is a good fit? And especially since today's topic is more on the business side of things, you know, this is assuming you've already decided that you feel you fit in there. It's the right place for you. Now you got to look at the numbers. So when you first talk to them about numbers, they are most likely going to give you something like a, a non-disclosure to sign, essentially saying that you are looking at their private information and their financials, and you're not going to take that and use that in some other form or disclose that to other people. But then once you get that sheet, or many times today, it's going to be an electronic file or a PDF, something along those lines. And you're going to open that up. There's just going to be pages of numbers, spreadsheets, balance sheets. One of the overall simple things that you're going to be looking at, and it may not be labeled as such, but they're called balance sheets. So a balance sheet is essentially a snapshot of the financial health or situation of a business. And it's over a period of time. So it doesn't tell the years and years of storage, but usually it's like a year period. It could be a six month period or maybe even a quarter. So pay attention to the period of time that it has captured. And every balance sheet, the, the overall equation that it is, is your assets are going to equal your liabilities plus your equity. So I'll say that one more time since you don't have a visual of this, but so your assets are going to balance. That's why it's called a balance sheet. So you're going to be equal to your liabilities plus your equity. And what are assets? I think most people have at least a basic concept of this. Assets can be physical things. They can be your, your instruments. They can be your implant supply. They can be your chairs, different things like that. But they can also be non-physical things. They can be intangible assets where such as accounts receivable, they don't have to be a physical thing. 
but accounts receivable are expected to turn into value. And so it is an asset that will eventually turn into money for you or has value. So your assets then equal your liabilities. So liabilities are different things like debt or things that will eventually turn into expenses, right? So luckily in, in our industry, liabilities don't tend to be as large of a proportion as a lot of businesses out there. We tend to have a lot of equity in our practices. And so not that liabilities are bad either, but we tend to not be that debt heavy. And you can get a feel for that by looking at the liabilities section of, of the balance sheet. Also, don't assume that all debt is bad. So right now we're in a, a period of time where inflation is extremely high. Interest rates are really low. Now that's starting to change a little bit. But at the same time, if you see some liabilities on there or debt, could actually show that your potential business partners are really business savvy because this is the time out of any to take on some debt in order to maybe get that new cone beam or get that new scanner or really dive into custom CT guide abilities. So just because you see liabilities or debt on there, don't assume that it's bad. And then also, so then the equity side of things. So the equity is really what you're going to dig into to understand the financial health of that practice or how valuable that practice is. So within the equity, you are going to be looking at uh, revenue minus expenses and minus dividends. So that's what makes up equity is how much money you're making minus how much did you spend minus how much did the dividends or distributions, or in other words, dividends and distributions are what's paid out to the owners of the practice. And then whatever's left over is retained earnings. So don't just look at the balance sheet that has the assets, liabilities, and equities because, or equity, because that retained earnings part is just gonna be what's left over at the end of the year. So what you really wanna dig into they'll likely have a different sheet that really breaks down how the equity or retained earnings ended up being that final number for the year. Okay. This brings up a good point. I think I've looked at several practices and kind of run through some of these sheets. I think with oral surgery practices, you know, there's often question of like, what actually are you buying? If you're talking about buying into a practice here, as opposed to being an associate. So when you're buying an, into a practice, part of what you're buying is the hard, you know, stuff that's there. Like you're saying the assets, your cone beam, your equipment, things like that. And then also part of what is the value of that practice is what they call the goodwill, you know, the, the referral, so to speak, even though that's kind of an intangible thing that can come and go. You have to think about the situation too, because if you are, if you're taking over a practice completely and you're a solo practitioner, those referrals don't necessarily always 
transfer over a hundred percent because they might may not like you. They might have a good relationship with the previous doctor and maybe their first impression of you isn't the greatest and they decide to not stick with you. Where if you're, if you're doing something like a group, it's a lot easier to let that transfer over because there's still members of your group that those referrals like and know. And so it, you're more likely to be able to capture that quote unquote goodwill. Yeah, that's a very good point. I noticed too, as far as trying to figure out, okay, how much, you know, money does this practice actually make? We can mention between the difference between production and collections. Do you want to talk mm -hmm. about that a little bit? Yeah. Beware and pay attention to what people are saying because everyone loves to say the production number because it sounds the best. We all want to sound like we're producing tons of money and granted oral surgery is a great field and we, we do well, but also your production is not your revenue. And in many ways, I feel like throughout training, they made it sound that the difference between production and revenue was just because they, they weren't able to collect on whatever they produce, you know, because everyone talks about if you're an associate, make sure that you're paid on production and, and not collections. Well, at least in, in my experience, it's not so much not collecting money from patients. It's, it's more you're writing off a, a fair amount of money with insurance companies. Some of that will depend on how insurance heavy your practice is. If you go for a all cash practice, of course, that's not going to be as big of a proportion. But if, if you are a provider for these different insurance companies, you might be writing off 20% just right off the top. And that's just because insurances will only allow you to charge a certain amount of money for different procedures if you are in-network provider. And so automatically you write that number down. And so you can raise your fees all you want, but when you see one of those patients, it doesn't matter. You can only do the allowable fee for those procedures. And of course, there is a difference. If your practice is really bad at collecting, then yes, there can be a difference too. Also, there's going to be different things like write-offs that if you do something for a patient or if it's just you're trying to help a patient out and you're, or even some of the referrals and their families or different individuals like that, you'll just be writing the, the production off. And so it doesn't truly become revenue because revenue is when you actually receive money. Yeah. One thing too. So expenses, do you mention like revenue is basically kind of what you're collecting minus what you're paying or what your expenses are in an oral surgery practice real quick. You know, most of our expenses are probably the biggest one is payroll, right? Utilities to keep the lights on and everything to keep your actual practice going. And then there's maybe your, whatever your expenses for materials, sutures. I mean, but that's low. We don't have big uh, material expenses like a general dentist, like lab fees. Maybe there are some of that with, if you're doing a bunch of all on fours and kind of doing stuff like that, but the average oral surgery practice is pretty low on, on stuff like that. Right. And overhead is a number you like term that you hear a fair amount, right? 
you know, what's your overhead on that? So once again, as you're looking at this retained earnings or equity section, this is where you'll get an overall idea of what your overhead is. So one term to point out, anytime you're looking at these sheets, if you see a net something, so it could be net income, it could be net revenue, it could be blanking on it on the other net terms, but anytime it's saying net, that is saying that that is after things have been taken away. So your net income is after you've taken away the expenses. Okay. The, um, so just a cue that when you're looking at these sheets, you see a net something that tells you that something was taken out. So then figure out what was taken out to make it a net value. So as you're looking at overhead, your expenses divided by your net revenue is going to be what your overhead is. So you have to spend money to make money and this is your cost of doing business. So yes, it is the, the paying the employees, the paying for the, the sutures. The, and like you said, the good thing is even in, within the world of dentistry compared to the other specialties or general dentistry, we tend to have pretty low overhead. And I would say you'd probably average anywhere from 45 to 55. So it's, it's really easy just to say 50% overhead. There's going to be outliers either direction for sure. A good concept to think of with this too, and we'll get more into concepts later about a fixed cost and variable cost, but the more partners that you have, you're sharing a lot of these expenses and especially fixed costs and overhead actually goes down as you have more partners. So something to pay attention to is if the overhead is really high, despite having multiple partners, at least try to understand why that is. And granted, overhead isn't the end all be all. So if your pie is much bigger and yes, you, you're only getting 40% of it because your overhead is 60. If the pie is proportionally bigger to where you're earning more money, it's okay that your overhead is that much, but you should at least understand why it's that much. And, and someone that's doing well and has a really high overhead should have a lot of really fancy technology, things that are making your life easier, more efficient, and making it so that you can create a bigger pie. But also at the same time, if you're seeing some of these warning signs that, wow, it seems like cost is not really being controlled. They have really high overhead. You know, this practice isn't making that much more than this other practice. And that should give you some signs that maybe that practice isn't quite as profitable as some of the other ones that you're looking at. Yeah, that's a good point for sure. As far as when you're looking at some of these more detailed expenses and trying to trying to decide and figure out, you know, how well the practices run salaries versus dividends or distributions. What does that mean? First of all, when you start seeing some of this language about distributions and how doctors are getting paid. So I remember always looking at average salaries of oral surgeons and just thinking it's gotta be more than that based on everything that I'd seen before. Keep in mind that a salary is different than your overall 
money that you can make as a practice owner. And that is because a salary is paid and taxed higher than what your dividends or distributions are. Some of that can also change depending on what state you're into. So pay attention to those things as well. But the, you know, a business savvy practice isn't going to pay as high on the salary because you are paying payroll taxes. And when you're a business owner, you are paying twice the tax than when you are an employee receiving money from a, an employer. So, so realize that there's, there's going to be salaries for the doctors and then the true profit in the practice is going to be paid out to the practice owners. And that's going to be in the form of dividends or distributions. And those will be at a slightly lower tax rate. But anytime that you can save on taxes, do it because <laughs> you're going to be paying plenty of taxes throughout your career. So really pay attention to where the salaries are at, right? Because they're going to be the biggest expense for your practice. And so understand where they're at in the sheet because uh, different people will define the the net income or the operating income differently. And it all depends on how they're looking at it. So an operating income is how much money is left over after you have paid all your operating expenses. Now, some people may count the doctor salaries in the operating expenses or the accountant might not. They, they might put it separately and put it as as a non-operating expenses. So that's gonna be your difference between an operating income and a net income. So the way that many of the practices that I looked at had it was operating income is after you've paid everything else, but not the doctors. And then the net income was after you paid the doctors. So just pay attention because that will give you an overall idea of where all the money's going. Uh, one thing to bring up, cause you're, basically explaining this or hinting at it is you know most practices especially if it's a single owner doctor but i'm sure in groups as well to minimize your tax burden like you're saying you're running your business as an s corporation and so that means you know pay yourself or the doctors what's called a quote-unquote reasonable salary for someone with your same job and so usually, you, you know, your accountant or whoever just Googles, okay, what is the, the reasonable salary of an oral surgeon? And maybe it's 250000 And so you set that up, you know, as being your salary for the year. And so each month, the doctors are paid that base salary and, and that base salary is taxed, Medicare and all the kind of higher tax things that you have to, the government says, that reasonable salary is subject to all these taxes. But then if you're earning more than what's the quote unquote reasonable, you can count those decisions and that money is not subject to some of the other, you know, payroll taxes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. That's basically what you were kind of saying is why there's that difference between salary and distributions all to avoid paying additional tax. 
any other comments on kind of, I think maybe another comment that could be, you know, once you're looking and starting to look at all these numbers, like you had mentioned, they start revealing the overall, I guess, efficiency of the practice kind of starts showing you how well is this run? How much are the employees valued here? Who's getting, you know, paid the most? Is it being controlled? Are there, you know, bonus systems in place to incentivize people? And is it appropriate? You know, all this starts playing out when you're looking at the numbers. Yeah, definitely. And something to point out too, because this may be something that may slip by someone who's looking at this sort of stuff for the first time. So really when you're looking at how profitable is this going to be for you in the future? So look at one, how much you're, you're going to get as a salary, but also look at how much is going through the distributions or dividends, because based on the ownership percentage, that's, you're going to get a percentage of that. So if you are a 50, 50 partner, you're going to get 50% of that. If there's five of you in the practice and you're going to own 20% of it, then you're going to get 20% of that. So you're going to get that salary plus whatever percentage you own of the practice. And that's what your true value is. And that's where the value of buying into the practice is going to be because since more of that money does go through the dividends and distributions for tax purposes, the more you own of the practice, it's going to be much more valuable for you. And, and so, yes, many times you will have to pay a, a fair amount to buy that percentage, but also that, that's going to be the most valuable part and will pay out in the end. Just make sure that it's a fair and reasonable cost. One thing too to bring up that I've noticed when I've been looking at practices is sometimes it can be hard to kind of, dis- especially if it's a solo owner, sometimes it's hard to really... Uh, flesh out what the true expenses of the practice are because a lot of private solo owners they're running a lot of their own personal expenses maybe through the business you know and sometimes like there'll be out this big section on the repairs you know and you're like how did you spend this much money on repairs and they'll say something like oh well actually a lot of that is kind of stuff i did at my home i just ran it through my business and it can be kind of messy to figure out you know, really what is the true expense that this practice has when someone's meshing it over into their own life? That's very true too. It's something to, to pay attention to because there can be, don't take uh, anything I'm saying here as, as your overall advice because you'll have a lawyer, a good accountant. So make sure you run stuff by them to keep all of your expenses honest and that you're not going to run into any issues if you ever get audited. But that doesn't mean that everyone feels that way. And so you you may find some some shady things being done as quote unquote business expenses, especially in that setting where it's a solo practitioner because they don't have a partner that's helping keeping them honest in some of those things. And so you can find out that there's some shady expenses going through. Yeah, good point. Okay. As far as uh, fixed cost versus variable cost, can you kind of explain some of this for us. This is one of those other basic principles that it can really help you as you are looking at all of these these different costs throughout practice. So when you're evaluating, but then also once you're stepping in and all of a sudden 
helping make the decisions that control these things. So a fixed cost is something that it doesn't matter if you open the doors, if you had to shut down for a couple of weeks, a fixed cost is going to happen regardless. So a good example of this is rent. So whether you open your doors, if you are gone on vacation on for two to three weeks and you make zero money during that two to three weeks, it doesn't matter. You still have to pay rent. And so that is a fixed cost regardless of whether you are creating revenue or money for your practice. Another example is, is a salary. And that could be an employee or that could be an associate doctor or it could be all the doctors in the practice, you know, that typically will all have a salary for that reasonable salary. And those are all fixed costs. So then you have variable costs, which those are going to increase as you do more work or make more money. So implant supplies is, is a real simple thing to think about where you are going to increase the variable cost of your implant supplies, the more implants that you place, which is perfectly fine because implants have a, a good margin, meaning that there's, yes, there's some overhead, but you are going to make good money on it. And so that's a good variable cost. And then an hourly wage. And I say this with a caveat because almost like in research where a lot of times we like to control all these other variables so we can pay attention to one variable. Cost can be the exact same thing and business can be the exact same thing where you're going to control everything else in a certain paradigm just so you can evaluate something, but it may be something different in a different setting. So an hourly wage, if you open your doors, you're going to be paying employees. If you don't open your doors, you're not going to be paying them. So when you're looking at it in that aspect, it is a variable expense. However, if you are at the practice already and you're already open, all of a sudden that hourly wage is in that time or that moment, a fixed cost. You're paying that employee no matter how many patients come through that door. And so if you have someone who cancels or an open spot on your schedule, that's a fixed cost. And so anything that you can do to fill that gap and make money. So if you can get an emergency patient in and fill that gap with making some money, you are paying for what is now a, a fixed cost, if that makes sense. And then the, there can be mixed costs too. And that's where there's a portion of it is fixed and a portion of it is variable. And a real easy example of that is an associate who you're paying a salary and they're paid on production. So if they don't show up to the practice because they're out on vacation for a week, you're still paying them that salary. So that's a fixed cost. But if they are at the practice making money, they're also getting paid on production. So that's a mixed cost example. And we touched on this a little bit before, but with the fixed and variable costs and overhead, the fixed and mixed costs are shared as you add more partners. And even a lot of your variable costs really aren't that expensive with 
with oral surgery. And so the amount of money that you can make by adding a surgeon is pretty drastic because your earning capability is, is very good. And that's why the more partners you have, the lower your overhead is. And at the same time, all principles in business, there's a law of diminishing returns. So at some point, you're going to reach a maximum value of adding another surgeon, right? So at some point, your office is only big enough for a certain number of surgeons. And then you have to change your your whole setup if you add another surgeon. And, and so that's why there is a certain limit, but at the same time, the more the general rule, the more partners, the lower overhead you're going to have. Yeah, that's helpful to, to understand both from an owner perspective and from kind of a, an associate or someone kind of trying to buy into the practice. And real quick, so you you're in a group practice, correct? There's I am, three, yeah. Three of you or how many? Yeah, three of us and one partner is part-time, the senior partner. So okay. we think of ourselves as two and a half. Got it. Okay. Just maybe to get your own experience. Like, did you understand all this when you were kind of first buying in or did a lot of this come after the fact or how did you gain this knowledge? A little bit of both. I do feel like I was lucky in having some of that business background beforehand. So a lot of the overarching concepts I understood yet at the same time, even with when you learn all these concepts, it's completely different for every single industry. So really until you are working in it and you're seeing it and seeing all the parts and pieces moving within the practice, you don't have a full grasp on it. And uh, so really a lot of it does come with experience and, and looking at things and with seeing the, the overhead costs different. Sometimes it's easy to say that, but then you wonder, okay, I'm joining the practice. Is this actually going to happen? Are the costs going to come down? And, and yeah, truly, when you looked at the overhead, when I eventually got up to speed, you could see the overhead of the practice come down as we had another surgeon in the practice. So, but yeah, I, I definitely didn't have all this stuff down as I was looking. You will learn far more in, in your years of practice too okay but you had a good enough idea that when you're kind of running through the numbers of this practice you could say okay this looks pretty efficient and it looks like there's room for me if i join and it's not gonna disrupt the whole system and there's gonna be plenty of work for me to do and, and money to be had that type of a thing yeah yeah exactly sounds good and return on investment we hear that phrase a lot how is that kind of calculated in the oral surgery world? So return on investment. So think of anything that you are paying for in practice as it should either generate value or it should be necessary. So as an example of something that's just necessary, licenses. So you have to have a license to practice. So it's just necessary and it's a cost, you have to pay for it. Malpractice insurance, another example, it's just necessary. You have to pay for it in and of itself doesn't make you money, 
but it is necessary. And so that that's just a, a cost that you're not looking at the return on it, but it, it has to be necessary. Anything else you should be looking to make sure that it generates value. Don't think that value has to mean revenue or income. That's typically what people are talking about. And especially when you're calculating a return on investment, then yes, it, it is going to be something that makes you money. But let's say buying a, a coffee brewer for your staff so that they are happier, that makes you zero money. At the same time, if your staff is happier and it makes that, it gives them that little thing to be excited about or have that at work so that they have one less thing to think about trying to get in the morning, then, hey, you just created value, but it, it didn't make you any money. So then, so that's still, things like that can still be a valuable thing to buy. Everything else that you're wanting to create income out of, a return on investment is going to be your net profit. So remember, net means you took something out of it. That's the cost of the investment. So return on investment is equals net profit over the investment times 100 so that you get a percent number. So some of these numbers I'm going to throw out are just for the sake of making them simple calculations. I know they may not be 100% realistic, but let's say you're starting up a practice and they have zero implant supplies. <laughs> so first, that's going to be a steep thing to uh, jump into. Is But anyway, you're buying a implant system and a supply of implants so you can get started on placing implants. And let's say that that cost is $200,000, right? But let's say that if you pay that $200,000 over a year, you're going to be able to place 250 implants, which you can charge 600,000 for. So your net profit is actually 400,000 because you paid 200,000 and then divided by your investment, which was the 200,000. So that's multiplied by a hundred. So you get the percentage. And so your net profit was 400,000 divided by 200,000. And so your net or your return on investment is 200%, if that makes sense. And it's, that's just a real broad, easy example. You're going to have different kind of machines or instruments or tools that you could invest in. And you really want to have a grasp on, is this going to help us be more profitable or is it not? And Sometimes it's really easy to calculate what net profit is going to be. And, and sometimes it's really challenging. And I would say some of the more challenging ones are the difficult to measure things. So time is a very difficult thing to measure how much time you're creating or how much time you can gain by investing in things. In that same sort of sense, people are very valuable in your practice, but it is so hard to measure. If people weren't valuable in your practice, no one would have any employees and you would be the only person in your practice 
doing everything, but no one practices like that. And that's because people add value because they create time for you. And it really is challenging to measure. Do you need another employee to help free up time? Do you need another employee to make you more efficient? And you'll really see that when you have good employees, they create more time for you. And your time is so valuable that that creates a lot of value. So do everything that you can to keep your good employees that make you more productive and create time for you. And you, you will see this every single time that you hire someone new and are training them, you can just feel how much it slows you down. And that's when you'll appreciate your really good employees the most. That's a good example um, on, on return on investment. Real quick to go back to that. So you were doing the implant system. You spent 200000 for all your implant stuff. And, but it's 600,000 worth of profit it can generate for you. So you're saying return investment is just your profit over the investment or the expense that you had. I had a a note earlier where I actually had a typo. So it it is your net profit though. So even though you charged and earned the 600,000, you initially paid 200,000. So really the net money that you got back on top was the 400,000 yeah, and, yeah. and then divided by the 200,000. And, and so that, that'd that's, be a 200% got it. return on investment. Okay. That makes sense. And that's where you can get caught up in the net terms is remember that something was subtracted out. So yes. Yes. Okay. I like what you're saying in regards to these unmeasurable values. I think maybe just with more time, and experience you can better and accurately assess this but it's always difficult i think when you're talking about time and people and how valuable employees are i think you can also get stuck in a little bit of a called like a i don't know what i call like the bermuda triangle situation where you have these employees that are really well trained and you you know you know how painful it is to train new employees and for some of us, it's more painful than others. Other people enjoy training, but I think we can all agree it's painful to some degree with brand new people. But some of us, it's so painful to train new people that we value the existing people so much that those people can kind of keep demanding raises and raises and you can get stuck just paying these people unlimited amounts and getting abused by certain employees because you're so terrified of, you know, what will happen if they leave and, oh no, I have to train new people. And I just hate that so much. I've experienced, there's gotta be good systems for you to train new people. So it's not so painful that you have the ability to say, Hey, you know, like here's your value. And if what we agree on for your value isn't the same, then I'm okay letting that person go and finding a different job and not, you know, kind of just throwing all the numbers off, off whack just because I'm so afraid to let this person go or to train someone new. Right. And don't be afraid to let someone go just because they have experience. Sometimes, and we've learned this too, some of those same people that are 
acting that way towards you also create a lot of tension in the practice. And if you get a sense of that happening where they're bringing down morale or they're a toxic employee, but yet you are worried about letting them go because they do create value for you and, and you see the value they create. And so you're scared of letting them go. You can find someone else that will eventually fill that role too. And, and you may feel the loss for a bit, but you will be surprised at how good the morale of the practice can be when you get rid of those toxic employees. If they're demanding of you, it's very likely they're very demanding of their co-employees. And so just keep that in mind, pay attention to it because individuals that we thought our practice was really going to struggle after we lost them, we actually found that morale improved and everyone else picked up the slack and worked better because those toxic individuals were gone. Yeah, it's a good point. All right. So I, I was going to, I had literally just saw this the other day because a, this was a question one of our employees asked because, and so it made me think of the time value and employees. This is kind of a more boring example, but it's literally just because I got asked it the other day, but Anytime there's a tool or a service that does free up time since time is valuable. Now your time is the most valuable, but that doesn't mean that time isn't valuable for your employees either. So anything that they may be asking for that could free up their time, think of what that task is, how long they are doing that task and how much that is costing you to do that task. So we were asked about getting a shredding service to do all the shredding for all our documents. Right. And so your initial response is, man, I, I don't even want to look into that because that's just a whole extra service. That's another monthly expense, but really pay attention to some of the details and you, that'll help you make the decision. So let's say you're paying an employee 20 bucks an hour. Well, if that person's spending multiple hours an entire month shredding papers, you're paying $20 an hour for that person to shred papers. And so I looked up what the service would be and it's 130 bucks per month. So really what I'd need to show is that that individual is spending six and a half hours or more shredding paper every month. And if that's true, then that service makes sense because I'm already paying over 130 bucks a month for someone to shred papers. Turns out she's not spending that much time shredding papers. That's how you can look at it because you are paying these people to spend time doing stuff. And so then as an example, maybe a compromise, let's say she's shredding papers for three hours a month. Well, I'm already spending 60 bucks a month to uh, have her shred papers. And let's say there's a shredder I can buy for 300 bucks that allows her just to put the stack of papers in and walk away. And that cuts her time down to maybe about an hour a month. Well, we're, we're saving 40 bucks a month by getting that shredder. So really in a little over seven months, I've paid for the shredder and I have a happier employee because she's not spending so much time shredding. Kind of a boring example, but at the same time gives you insight into this is stuff that you can think about 
really pay attention to the time and the cost of things. And then when it comes to your time, your time is very valuable. So even all these little things that can add up, if you can save one minute in time because something's more efficient and you do that for every patient for a full day, that might clear you time to get in one more emergency. So let's say you clear 30 minutes in your day and you're able to see one more emergency patient. By the time that you do an exam, extract a tooth, do a graft, you know, at the, at the very least, you're, you're probably 700 to to $1,000 range, depending on what your fees are and what kind of x-ray you had to take or if you had to take an x-ray. All of a sudden, 30 minutes is very valuable where maybe that same patient you get in an implant will shoot. Then you just turn that 30 minutes into $3,000 with everything added up. So think of your time as very valuable. And it doesn't take much to be able to pay for example, a, a new employee. So if at the end of the day, you're wanting to get in an emergency, but you notice that every day when it's coming that time, when you are trying to squeeze in that last emergency, that you're just waiting on someone to become available to clean a room, to be able to get the emergency patient back, that might be your time to add one more employee because if you add a new employee for, let's say, $30,000 a year and you can add 10 more emergencies that are immediate implants for the entire year, well, you've, you've paid for that employee. So just like before, there's a lot of diminishing returns where at some point you'd have so many employees sitting around that adding one more employee isn't going to allow you to see another patient. So you do have to pay attention to that. But at the same time, realize how, if you can just become that much more efficient, how much easier it is to make money on your side of things. Good examples. That really helps me to understand it. So I think, you know, we've kind of gone through some of the, uh, the things to look for and ways to assess some of these practice documents you get or information you get about practices. From the, you know, the resident graduating perspective, once you've kind of gone through all this, you know, I think in your mind, you have to decide, okay, is this an efficient practice? You you have to assess who, who it is that's running the practice and are they open to my, you know, efficiencies? And if I see holes and things that can be improved, can I do that? So there's all these extra questions now that kind of start you know, coming into your mind that you have to try and answer. A lot of them are intangible and you're kind of guessing. Well, I think this is a good start to at least say, hey, here's where the practice is. And is this kind of something I'm comfortable, you know, kind of fitting into and joining? Where do you take this information once you have it, Paul? So one, I would look at a couple different practices just so you have an idea of how a practice can compare to other ones. It is challenging because like you said, there are all these intangibles that you don't know, even though everything may seem like a good fit, you could find that maybe it isn't once you get to that practice. And so 
But I think the overarching thing you'll find is many of our colleagues are very open and good about being that person that you can talk to, to ask these questions, to get advice. And so I reach out to people because we have a very good network of people and we have good people in our profession that are always willing to help. And we were all on the receiving end of help at different times of advice that helped us. So don't be afraid to reach out and maybe get a, a second opinion on on some of the practices and what you're looking at and things that you're noticing about the practice or, or maybe some of your concerns and talk through some things. And because it is a big decision and it's a big task to be going through all this without all the experience yet. And so people can always be at a lot of value in helping you figure these things out. Yeah, I agree a hundred percent. I think it's important to ask a lot of questions, you know, to uh, the practice owner that you're consider joining, because that in itself will kind of give you a, a view into, well, how rigid is this, you know, business system? How flexible is it? Because if I see, oh, well, you know, maybe I want to make these changes. You need to ask about that first. If you can tell they're kind of like, well, that's, that's a hard no on that one. I've done it this way and I'm never going to change. You know, then you either have to be okay with that or you have to say, that's going to make me a little uncomfortable because this aspect of the practice to improve on is really important to me. And it sounds like they're not willing to do that. Um, so, so questions to the owner, but then also like you're saying, questions to experienced people. There's ways to kind of share this information with more experienced, you know, colleagues, professors, friends, just don't, don't be an island and don't assume that that every practice owner out there is running at top efficiency. Make sure you're running this stuff by other people and because it, it can be so complicated and you're already so busy as a resident, it's hard to really hash through some of the stuff without experienced help. Right. And don't be intimidated by the business side either. Yes, you may have very little experience in it, and it's a whole new realm of things that, that you haven't done yet and you don't have tons of experience in. At the same time, you've gone through some of the most vigorous testing, schooling, training that there is for any sort of profession. Don't let the intimidation of unknown information or the ambiguity of business keep you from really diving into it. You are smart. You are intelligent. You can figure this stuff out. You can learn this stuff and shoot. There's plenty of people that will help you along the way. There's plenty of people that want to take your money and, and still help you along the way. There are so many resources out there. You can become a very good business savvy person. Don't think you have to shy away from it because you can do challenging and tough things. You've made it this far you can figure out a business as well. And I would just add to that. Oftentimes when I'm looking through some of these documents, I'm kind of of the mindset of, you know, where can improvements be made and where can more money be made that that's being lost? Because sometimes a practice has a lot of added value that's there, but isn't being utilized almost like real estate, right? Like, cause I buy an, 
do buy and hold rental properties and and sell and flip things i've done that in the past and so if you're like going into a, let's say a two-bedroom condo but you know there's like a den there that could be made into another third room easily by putting a door and a closet and stuff you can increase the value of that like you know by putting five grand into making an additional room boom you could flip that you know for 30 grand and similar thing with practices oftentimes there's certain areas that can really be added to and you can be going through this and being like oh wow if we just do these little tweaks that would equal big changes in, in the income of the practice so keep an eye on that and then then ask questions to figure out how likely it is to get that stuff done right and i think the more the more you can dig into things and be business savvy and let's say you do have some partners that might be resistant to a concept if you can really show them the value that it creates there's not a lot of people that will say no to created value granted that you want to make sure that you joined individuals that are willing and open for changes so that's definitely something to pay attention to when you're deciding what practice to join but then when you're in the practice if you can really dig into the numbers and and show them how look if we get this new comb beam and it is going to cut down on the time because this other comb beam we have these problems and and then it ties up our panorex and this and this and this if you can show them how much time is created and how much value is created by doing this different investment that's going to be much easier sell to your partners rather than oh i just want to spend x amount of money on this new thing because and they're thinking well this works fine and that just seems like a fancy toy but if you can really show them it creates value you're much likely to practice the way that you want to and become more efficient yeah i love that that's great awesome well i think a lot of good information here if people have questions are you okay if they reach out to you paul yeah definitely same here reach out to me uh we'll put paul's email in the show notes and mine as well yeah but i think that was a a good review yeah well thanks for having me again yeah sounds good thanks for your time and uh, let's keep in touch and do some more episodes all right have a good one okay you too thanks Thanks for listening to this episode of Everyday Oral Surgery. Once again, please email me at grantstukey at gmail.com if you have any topics you'd like to hear about, guests you'd like to hear from, or if you yourself would love to be a guest, please, please email me or text me at 720-441-6059. And also just love hearing from people if you enjoy the podcast or you know learn something from it or talk to a friend or connected with someone because of the podcast. That just makes my day. So please shoot that correspondence over to me and I will see you on the next episode. Thank you.